0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the easy peasy podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. Duke 2029, written and read by Michael T. Whistler. Chapter 5, The Cookout. He wakes up in a cold sweat, despite the air conditioning. Sally looks at him with a tilted head, concerned. He can't remember the dream exactly, but he remembers a feeling, and has another feeling about what the first feeling was about fuck he mutters with her on his mind not mad at her but at himself sally jumps down from the bed a bit startled he apologizes to her swings his feet from the bed and stands up a bit dazed from such a deep nap he sees a flash of a memory and curses again but internally he walks to the bathroom and urinates still a bit too yellow he walks back to the duffel on the floor pulls out a big water bottle and drinks two-thirds of it down without stopping he gasps breathes and relaxes his tense shoulders within with a focused intent taking one more swig he rolls his neck around and stands naked feeling his body not with his hands but with his mind he does an assessment he is more than a bit tight He remembers Hayduk doing his calisthenics, his deep stretches, as he finishes the bottle of water. Wonder what time it is, he thinks momentarily, before the inevitable who cares comes to his mind. He pulls the curtain from the window and scans the bleak and tan world outside. Everything is tan, except the highway, which is most certainly black heat shimmering in the late afternoon summer sun he doesn't see anything or anyone of interest except that the shadows are getting long he thinks of clothes realizing quickly there aren't any in the room he considers the clean clothes still in the camper then at once realizes he didn't see the truck or camper outside through the window where'd it go he shouts out loud again startling sally he runs out of the motel room completely naked leaving the door wide open and sally follows equally naked he has a moment of panic but collects himself enough to realize his expositional demeanor he runs back into the room and grabs the towel off the bed wrapping it around himself he walks to the office and goes in suzanne he asks to nobody He walks through the half gate, separating the patron from host, and looks into the back room, full of files, laundry supplies, linens, vacuum cleaner, and a large safe. He goes back outside and sees that he left the door to his room open. The dog is loose, not a major concern, but his duffel is on the floor and his pistol is on the desk, realizing both he and they are unprotected. He jogs, as best he can, wrapped in the towel, back into his room and grabs his gun, leaving the holster. He thinks about locking the door, but realizes he doesn't have the room key. He pauses. Why don't I have the key? He asks himself. They're still in my pants. He runs back out, holding his Glock with one hand and the towel with the other, and heads to the door next to the office labeled Laundry. He opens the door and hears a sound of a machine running. He walks in and opens the machine, seeing some but not all of his clothes. It is still wet but not soaked on the spin cycle. He fumbles through the soggy mass of clothes, looking for belt loops, zippers, buttons, trying to find the pants he had on, not seeing them. After a frantic search, he's satisfied his pants aren't in the washing machine. He slams the door of the old Maytag and neglects to hit the start button to finish the few dozen final spins of the cycle he walks out of the laundry room and looks around seeing nothing and nobody he wonders where sally went as he walks away from the laundry room he sees a glimmer of green through the carport separating the office from the motel's rooms which are in essence two separate buildings connected only by a roof leading into somewhat of a courtyard he walks through the opening dividing the structures and spots a grill chairs and two people smoke is rising out of the old Weber grill he sees his truck camper and Sally the dog who is sniffing around the grill he smiles at the scene relieved to know where his rig had gone Suzanne and Hayduk are chatting back uh, backs to him he smiles bigger as he realizes again his situation and appearance He tucks his pistol inside the towel and holds the towel with his right hand, concealing it as well as he can. He tries to walk nonchalantly towards his fellow humans, shirtless with an oddly angular phallic looking package outlined under his towel. Oh my, says Suzanne as she sees the trim and glistening male form barely covered. She blushes but does not look away. I see you moved my truck says merle oh my yes i did i'm sorry if i startled you i just thought it might be best to get it out of view of the highway you never know who might be passing through and that's a nice looking setup you got there mister she smiles at him looking him up and down well suzanne you did give me a bit of a scare but i appreciate it it was good thinking i was exhausted after taking a shower you seem tired. I knocked on the door and nobody answered. I had found your keys and your clothes and figured it was best to take matters into my own hands. Not that the first time, not the first time I towed a, towed and backed up a trailer, and I figure you wouldn't mind Hayduke laughs, finding it all completely hilarious. I sure don't, bless you, he says. Heyduke, buddy, you seem to be getting a kick out of this whole thing. Well, Hayduke says, still chuckling, I never saw a man with a Glock in his bath towel before. He bursts out with laughter again. The man looks down at his hand and realizes the weapon is not terribly well hidden, with the black of the gun's grip, slide, and magazine sticking up and contrasting starkly with his Scandinavian skin, and equally white bath towel. The man flushes with embarrassment, remembering again his level of exposure some of your clothes are hanging up around the corner i assumed you had more seeing you with that duffel bag earlier suzanne says smiling and continuing to stare at his slim body more interested in it than the weapon she was not scared of guns and carries one herself well as a matter of fact i do not not in the room i have some in the camper though do you happen to have those keys someplace Suzanne quickly reaches into a fold in her long flowing dress and removes his keys and the room key from her pocket. She tosses them quickly in tandem, saying, Think fast, cowboy. The arc was a perfect trajectory towards the man. He catches them with both hands, dropping the towel and the Glock in the process. She smiles, seeing the ample manhood of her guest merle flushes red again and quickly covers himself with his hands still holding the keys poking his own testicles he grimaces Heduk starts laughing even harder than before merle then kneels down and tries to pick up the towel and his weapon not exactly sure how to hold everything all at once including his exposed penis god damn it he shouts being intentionally comical about it finally embracing his embarrassment Both of the others burst out uh, in another fit of laughter, watching the unplanned scene of genuine humor unfold. If it was a snake, it would have bit me, the man shouts, still bent over collecting his few precious belongings with both hands, referring to his pecker freely dangling in his face. The two laugh even harder, bending over themselves, slapping their knees. God damn, the man says once more. Provoking the final round of chuckles. Suzanne and Hayduc catch their breath and smile at each other. You need a hand over there, pal? Hayduc queries. Not yours, thank you very much, the man replies. How about mine? says Suzanne, not missing a beat. Well, Suzanne, the man says, finally getting himself covered back up with the towel and picking up the Glock, making no show of hiding it any longer i think i'd rather you buy me dinner first working on that merle she retorts with a sly grin she opens the grill and a plume of smoke erupts out steak and potatoes just what i figured two growing boys need and some asparagus was frozen but it should taste fine grew it myself or rather we grew it ourselves she gestures behind her shoulder around the corner of the fence and beyond The man walks past the two and peers around the corner of a fence, seeing a large garden invisible from the road by design. Rows of tomatoes, peppers, onions, cabbage, dill, basil, cilantro, parsley, cucumbers, squash, pumpkins, turnips, carrots, radishes, potatoes, and, yes, asparagus lay bare before before him. An array of IBC totes. 325-gallon containers with metal exoskeletons, meant for carrying a variety of things in the world before and now commonly used for an assortment of purposes in the world after, are stacked in a long row along one side of the garden. It looks to be every bit of two acres and teeming with life. The soil looks dark, moist, and healthy, and the plants look well-fed. Bees are buzzing around a box in the center of the garden underneath a massive peach tree, which is still holding fruit. The perimeter of the garden is planted with a variety of, uh, variety of fruit trees and bushes, and the perimeter beyond that consists of a blend of r- ragusa rose and raspberries, creating a naturally beautiful barricade of thorny brambles, dense enough to keep the deer, coyotes, and rabbits out the man is stunned from the road one would never imagine this oasis existed behind the fence got some peach cobbler for dessert says Suzanne where where'd you get the where do you get the water he mutters that old dirty devil says Suzanne no shit the man manages to say quietly turns out that water is good for one thing growing plants no fucking shit he says again almost whispering too thick to drink too thin to plow he says a little a little louder that's it but just right for gardening full of trace minerals it's just a bit alkaline so we add some sulfur to neutralize it all we need otherwise is some worm castings and cow manure which we've got in spades. We've got all the worms in bins under the water tanks and feed them all our cuttings, food scraps, paper, and anything else we think they might like. The man stands with his mouth fully agape, not sure what to say or do. He wants to explore the garden naked and almost decides to, but realizes there are other households and businesses butting up to this community project. Project he mumbles something about getting dressed and heads for the trailer staring at the garden the whole way astonished he sees it goes all the way damn near to stands understanding now that this is the garden from which the tomato onion and lettuce certainly are currently in his intestines were grown he marvels at it all at the dense greenery hidden in this desert town in this shit town this apparently shit town. Perhaps it isn't so bad in Hanksville after all, he thinks. He gets to the camper and fumbles once more dropping his towel, exposing his buttocks to all but simply does not care this time. He unlocks and opens the door of the trailer, enters, carrying only the pistol and keys, leaving the towel on the ground and the door wide open. He heads to the closet, grabs a pair of light trousers and a linen shirt and puts them on, not bothering with a belt. He grabs his fine Australian wool wide brimmed cowboy hat and puts it on before slipping the barrel end of the gun in his pocket. He walks out of the trailer barefoot and back to his friends, knowing them as such after such an ordeal of intense bonding and says a simple, well, howdy well aren't you a touch more presentable looking sharp cowboy says suzanne i guess you can polish a turd says hey fuck i'm just glad my camper and truck ain't stolen that was some ordeal apologies for the scare again i feel terrible but there's bandits about on occasion things go missing sometimes i thought it best to move it like i said i didn't want to wake you I think you ought to keep better track of your keys, young man, Suzanne says in a maternal way, like a grandmother might. Yes, ma'am, I will try. You two got me feeling a little too comfortable and trusting. That's my mistake, he says with a teasing grin. Anybody want a cold one? Don't drink, myself, but you go ahead, Suzanne remarks. Merle didn't peg her as a Mormon, necessarily, though this statement of sobriety could make one think so. She seems like too much fun and too much of a flirt to be LDS, but then again, perhaps she is just a decent humorous person in any event. He reminds himself of the total absurdity of the fact that alcohol is the only drug for which people assume you have a problem if you don't take it. Count me in, comes from Duke all righty i've got some shine if that appeals to either of you lord almighty you boys are going to be the death of me only if you're lucky what a way to go she says suggestively let's not get carried away you two says hey a girl can dream now didn't you say something about music sure would love to hear some merle merle can do anything for such a gracious host the man walks towards the trailer now more conscious of the gravel under his feet while it isn't completely intolerable he decides to don his sandals he grabs two cold beers out of the refrigerator and takes stock 12 left we may drink those he thinks perhaps i shouldn't get this man drunk though he's clearly got a sordid past but so do I, and perhaps we should. He grabs his D-cell battery-operated boombox with an old MP3 player that still managed to hold a decent charge after he rebuilt it. He had loaded it with a thousand of his favorite favorites before taking his journey, a small miracle in this new world. The man walks out towards the trailer, no longer caring, uh, caring about locking the door, as he would likely go through it many more times tonight for beer and because it's in direct eye contact. He realizes, however, that his motel, key is still, or his motel room is still unlocked. He picks up the towel from the dirt and brushes it off, thinking of his duffel bag and the contents within. He hands the, a beer to Hayduk and reaffirms the motel key is in his pocket as well as the trailer and truck keys. He begs their pardon, explaining that he needs to go to the room, but assures them he will be back quick, as Suzanne is be- beginning to look ready to serve. He walks briskly through the thoroughfare and heads for room eleven at the far end of the motel. Sally follows. He opens the unlocked door and sees the bag still on the floor. He unzips it, looking inside to see the contents are still there. His precious and unique pirate. Py- pirate box a small lock box full of treasure and boxes of ammunition he sighs a breath of relief all in all the bag weighed over 60 pounds as valuable things are often heavy he zips up the bag and heads back outdoors where sally is waiting not wanting to go inside yet unless called he closes the door and locks it behind him finally securing his valuables. He cracks the cold beer in his hand and walks back to the party, smiling and taking a sip. Despite the mild drama, this is shaping up to be a lovely evening, and he doesn't want to miss any of it, so he hurries back. The sun is beginning to set, and he thinks of the Midwest. As beautiful as the mountains and canyons are, he thought, nothing beats a Midwest sunset. He rejoins the group and offers a toast to new friends. Cheers, says Heyduke, knocking the cans. Cheers, boys. Thanks for letting this little old lady crash your sausage fest. I'm impressed you know the phrase, Suzanne, the man says. Well, you young bucks might be surprised to hear it, but I wasn't born yesterday. My eyes and ears are wide open, and I ain't quite dead yet. I'll be learning new things until that day comes. Well fucking said, says Merle. You boys ready to eat? I think cooking these steaks any longer would be a sin. Grab your plates from the table, come and get it. The man turns on his boombox and selects Merle Haggard's greatest hits and hits the shuffle button. By some chance, Mama Tried begins to play. He turns up or turns it up to a reasonable volume accommodating to conversation the group sits together at a picnic table and eats they joke tell stories and remember times of the past they swap names of friends and family members as well as places and experiences freely as people used to and still should but rarely do merle continues to withhold his name and assumes heyduke is doing the same they finish their plates belch lick them clean say many thanks, and more jokes, and more stories. They ramble on until dark, shortly after which Suzanne says, Well, boys, it's been a pleasure, but it's time for me to retire, collecting their plates and utensils in a plastic tub. HeyDuke responds, I hope only for tonight. The world needs you working here, Susie. My husband used to call me Susie, she says with some nostalgia. Is that a proposition? Asks Hayduke, cracking wise Only if you'll have this old lady, you silver-tongued devil Maybe next time through, Suzanne Or Susie A man could only be so lucky, he says Assuming he'd never be back Well, you two stay out of trouble tonight I don't want to have to come bail you out of jail It's on the other side of the county And that's practically half a world away Yes, ma'am, the two say in unison, despite both thinking they could have said mom instead, laughing at the timing. Come say goodbye before you leave. Don't forget about your deposits now. Sounds good, Suzanne, says Merle. Good night. In the background, he hears the sound of his favorite Haggard tune, Are the Good Times Really Over, on the boombox the one he and Suzanne were quoting earlier. Before the Beatles and yesterday, when a man could still work and still would, is the best of the free life behind us now? And are the good times really over for good? Are we rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell? With no kind of chance for the flag or the Liberty Bell I wish a Ford and a Chevy would still last ten years like they should Is the best of the free life behind us now And are the good times really over for good? Figure not, the man says out loud after Suzanne leaves. What's that? asks Heyduke. The good times. Over. I figure not. Well, if tonight's any indication, I'm inclined to agree. One another? Absolutely. Merle heads back to the trailer and grabs four more beers. He, feel, he fills Sally's bowls with and whistles for her to come to the trailer for her dinner, which she does. Want something for the beers? Heyduke asks when he returns. No, absolutely not. My treat, Merle says, handing two of two to Haduke hey and keeping two for himself, cracking one open. I think you might change your mind, says Haduke, hey as he fishes two short cigars out of his breast pocket macanudos he hands one over to the man wrapped in a plastic sleeve not too many of these left anymore not the greatest cigar but a good one dominican well hot damn a man of many talents let's smoke but i want a toke first the man reaches into his own pocket for something and retrieves he he retrieved on the last beer run a glass pipe Packed full of sticky green buds. You partake? Oh, on occasion. And if this ain't an occasion, I don't know what is. They get stoned on one puff apiece and then light, light their cigars. You ever feel like you've got it better than you deserve? asks Hadouk. Hey All the time, replies Merle. I've done things, you know. The cannabis was taking Haduk hey back into his memories and opening him up. Things I'd rather forget, he says, but never will. I don't want to talk about them, really, except to say they happened. I've done things also, made mistakes, but we're getting there, right? We're still here. Time will tell, I suppose. Now I've got to ask, what's this podcast about? I'm curious. Well, it's about solving this thing. Support, information, community. It's about everyone knowing that they're not alone out there. But what if we are alone? What if we have been? Well, you aren't anymore. Now your turn. Tell me about you. After a long pause, Heyduke says, Well... To tell you the truth, since you've been honest with me, I'm a mole hunter. Hmm? Merle hums, ears perked up. How do you mean? Let's just say I've learned a few things in my time. Certain specialized skills. And I have a way of telling a friend from a foe. How? asks the man with some mild trepidation the last statement from his new friend making him a tad uneasy like they are on the verge of a dangerous discussion God tells me says Heyduke God? Yes God Are you sure? Yes How? asks Merle. He is intrigued but taken aback. He shows me who they truly are. Like how? I can see the demons that possess them. So what do you do? I hunt them. And when you find one, he asks, already knowing, what do you think? Hadouk takes a long pull off his cigar. You kill them, Merle whispers. Bingo. No time to perform an exorcism, and that's not my area of expertise. God chose me to be his sword, or one of them. I don't know how many others there might be. I thought you said you've had enough of Americans killing Americans. How's what you're talking about any different? There's a big difference. Brother against brother happens because of miscommunication and allegiances. Leaders and their misguided policies. Politics. He says it like a dirty word coming off his tongue. What I'm talking about is way different these people are no longer even human let alone American like I said they are possessed by demons and God shows me how can I believe you I don't know if you can pray about it maybe do I sound like I'm lying to you I figure you're either crazy full of shit or neither well, I'm proud to say neither. I wish I was crazy or full of shit sometimes. Life might be easier that way. I go where I'm guided, and I don't really see that I have any choice in the matter. Though I suppose I do. I could say no, but that's hard to do to God when he, it, <clears throat> when he or it is guiding you. Why do you think I'm here? Do you think it was an accident? I was put here at this motel by design divine intervention why to meet you dumbass but why me i asked the same question some years ago i asked myself that same question some years ago and take my word for it you won't get an answer to that question except who else chapter six equality she stands looking at him with her chin hanging towards the floor completely stunned for a moment looking in his eyes which are serious and intense in her cool calm and collected way she closes her jaw and smiles up at him pats his shoulder and says no not yet with tenderness but a touch of resolute indignation she does not particularly care for the way he asked it so suddenly but knows he means it she was simply not ready for such a massive question but he couldn't help himself due to his impulsive nature and certainty two things about him she both loves and hates for him she is just too damn beautiful she flowed like water and he would be a fool not to love her now unsure of what to do with the rejection but still hopeful after standing face to face for a moment he tries for a kiss but is denied again gracefully she is tripping too not as hard as he is but tripping nonetheless she had dropped a liquid dose of lsd on his tongue earlier and it was the biggest dose of the best acid he had ever experienced the feelings are very palpable He can see, smell, hear, and almost taste the feelings in the air. It is so intensely palpable as to be nearly unbearable with massive significance. The man frustratedly turns from her, not getting what he wants, which is her. If I were a carpenter and you were a lady, would you marry me anyways? Would you have my babies? If a tinker were my trade Would you still find me? Carrying the pots I made Following behind me Save your love through loneliness Save your love through sorrow I'll give you my only Give me your tomorrow The song reminds him of a funny line he once heard from a crazed, drunken, homeless man on the sidewalk, trying to pick up young women. He wonders whether she'd find it amusing, hoping to cut through the tension of the moment, refusing to be beaten. Hey, beautiful. He hollers from across the kitchen, wheeling back towards her as she is removing a dish of lasagna from the oven. Her sister and her sister and Jake turn to listen from the couch. Do you need anything? He asks her, laughing at himself already, making it clear he's putting on a show for all and letting out a little more Southern draw than his natural form, trying to sound like John Mellencamp or someone else smooth, handsome, and Southern. A skeptical, uh, no, I don't need anything, comes out of her mouth, unsure of where her wild man is going with this i knew you didn't you know how i knew because you're a lady not just a woman she tries not to smile you know the difference between a lady and a woman don't you a, begrud- a begrudging half smile crosses her face as she softens knowing that this will be fun no i guess i don't why don't you tell us the difference you smart ass her smile grows he ignores the playful insult Well, honey, a lady is distinguished as hell. She ain't got no need for makeup, or not much of it at least. She's naturally beautiful and refined. So, what's a woman then, you're asking yourself? Well, I'll tell you, darling. Do you know what an Amish girl dreams about at night? Her sister and Jake are now fully engaged in this line of inquiry. Interest peaked, as is hers. Still unsure of where he is going. This is, this here is the man she loves, and the other two can see why. He's charismatic, charming, and at times quite funny. All an Amish girl dreams about is, he pauses for effect, two men a night, he shouts out, and the other three roar with laughter, doubling over at the punchline. He continues not yet finished not yet finished and on a roll not wanting to lose the momentum and as a lady you would never dream of such a thing so i beg you don't trifle yourself with wondering about what a man or what a woman is or ain't cuz a woman only cares about getting a man or two and you're a lady i bet he pauses again milking their attention you don't even want a man do you He asks this poignant question in a playful way, wagging his finger flamboyantly as he says it, grossly exaggerating his body language, accent, volume, and tone, nearly going over the top but barely managing not to. His own style of comedy. Playing along now, she stands up straight, puts her fists on her hips with the oven mitts still on, juts out her chin and smiles, saying powerfully, no i do not and the other two keep laughing i knew you didn't you know how i knew because you're a lady you could have any damn man you want. stretching out this last line and dropping the mic so to speak the entire room laughs once more it had been obvious to everyone all day just how thoroughly in love with her he is and that she is still uncertain despite knowing his depth of honesty. The man is absolutely wild, unreserved, and fun-loving to the core, always following some passion or another. He is, therefore, a lot to tolerate for some, a lot of manhood. He goes on, And you ladies, you don't even know what us men go through for you. He had just finished working for a month in New Orleans, erecting traffic control poles with devices and sensors meant to warn travelers of high water crossings with signs reading water over road when flashing and turn around. Don't drown. The group had heard a few New Orleans stories already, but he continues improvising poetically like any cowboy might. While I was working in New Orleans, I was down there in the muck and the mire, wading through ten feet of human and animal feces, hypodermic needles, diapers, leaky car batteries, asbestos, rats, and radioactive sludge. I was slogging and hogging, digging holes and standing poles, pushing dirt and dodging traffic, pouring and finishing concrete, getting enough dust in my nose to set up firm in my nostrils, making rock boogers that I had to pull out my little nose hairs when I picked them. <clears throat> I was sweating like a damn polar bear on a southern zoo on the 4th of July, and I couldn't hardly th- see thanks to the sweat rolling in my eyes, and my damn testes almost fell off from the chafing. Praise the good Lord for Gold Bond. He is really on a roll now, soaking in the room's energy, moving around, speaking with his whole body, enjoying being capable of getting a laugh, especially from her. It is a sweet, soft, pure laugh, which only comes out when she finds something genuinely funny. She wasn't one to force it. She is as smart as she is beautiful, perhaps smarter, and has a wickedly keen sense of humor. She settles into the couch with the rest of the audience, ready to enjoy the remainder of the show as the lasagna cools off. He paces back and forth in front of them, gesturing and talking like a veteran stand-up comedian. Anywho, my point in saying all this, ladies, is is to say that the last thing y'all should want is equality, he says mockingly, making air quotes. This makes everyone smile and laugh a bit, wondering where he's going, but quietly enjoying the political incorrectness. Equality is the worst thing for you. Unless y'all like to do trade jobs, I swear... You ladies is lucky you got us men. Getting down there in the dirt and on our hands and knees, getting shit done in the ass cracks and shitholes of the world. Equality. Ha! You don't want no equality. You just want a man that works hard, lays good pipe, doesn't beat you up, and never cheats. Or at the least, three out of the four. At this point, the group's sides are starting to hurt with laughter. He drops down to his knees and and clasps his hands as if praying. Us men, we love you women. We're just begging for you to love us too. She smiles. He has done what he set out to do. Keep her in love with him, if only for a short time more. Chapter 7 The Party He drives the old F-250 across town, black duct tape alone, holding the broken mirrors and turn signals in their proper places precariously, with tape peeling a bit in the seltzering summer heat. He drives east on Raymond and north on Sherman, turning east again into a residential zone just past the big grain elevator by the railroad tracks. Sally the dog sits next to him panting hanging her head out of the window she doesn't know where they are going as she has never seen this side of town before but she's happy to be out they pull down a dead-end street seeing some cars parked in the front yard of the last house on the block a few folks are milling about collecting chairs and coolers out of the trunks of their cars the man picks up uh, picks a spot on the grass being careful not to park anyone in as he is planning on being one of the last men standing, as usual. He pulls in, grabs the big shift lever on the column of the Ford, and pulls it up, in and up into the park position before shutting off the engine. He opens the heavy metal door with a squeak and lets Sally jump out behind him, closing the door behind her. He makes his way to the long bed of the trusty, ugly ducking, duckling of a pickup truck, which shows multiple layers of paint and rust under its most recent coat of white, which he purchased for a humble $1,400. He removes the necessary tools for the evening, camp chair, 12-pack of Miller Lite, and his big battery-operated boombox. He takes the load and deposits it in the back end of a golf cart-turned-utility vehicle and double-checks that he has his cigarettes and lighter in his pocket. He's um, the small group standing around the cart welcomes the man with hugs and handshakes. Glad you can make it. One of the women says, thanks, Claudia. Me, too. I've heard stories about the legendary parties out at Allentown. I'm glad to be here. Finally. Speaking of which, where is Alan? He's in the garage feeding the dog, she says with a wink, making air quotes code speaking in a faded german accent i want to meet this dog i've heard so much about he laughs go on in they're both in there the man walks to the workshop garage and opens the side door stepping into the cool dark barnyard scented interior there is an olive skinned olive skinned man with a full fu manchu mustache about twice his age feeding a pink and spotted pot pig something resembling dog kib- kibble. What's happening, Alan? Who do we have here? Right here, we've got Porky. This little motherfucker's been causing quite a stir in the neighborhood lately. Neighbors called animal control and ratted us out, so Porky's laying low, here in the garage, hiding from the law, a wanted pig. He is dead or alive. He pets the pig with tender, loving care as it eats the dry food from the garage floor. Motherfuckers, man. Some motherfucking neighbors we've got. Porky never bothered nobody. Motherfucking animal control come on by here with an IMPD officer, and were poking around, looking over the fence and peering in my windows when Claudia and I got home yesterday. Asked if they could look around. I told them to get a damn warrant or get the hell off of my property. What do you think you'll do if they come back? Oh, I guess I only got a couple choices. Give them Porky or kill. Kill Porky or... He almost finishes the question but doesn't. Doesn't want to say it out loud. Hmm, that is the question, ain't it? I don't like these lawmen on my land, not one bit. They're playing a more dangerous game than they know poking around here. I'm about to bury some landmines. Can't blame you, Alan. Just don't forget where you put them, though. Well, we've got the damn zoning commission after us, too, for Claudia's horses, saying we didn't get approval for those animals, and we're not zoned for them. Hell, we've only got the four of them. The neighbor on the other side of the fence has 20 or 30, but they didn't. they are apparently on the proper side of some line on some map. It's nonsense, man. We we take better care of our animals than anyone around here, and they give us a hard time. I'm on the brink, man. We're trying to do the do it right. Get a variance from the zoning commission, whatever the he, whatever the hell that means. Fucking pricks, man. Amen. Says Alan. The two men leave Porky in the air con, air-conditioned garage and rejoin the group. There are six people: Little Kev, Mel, Claudia jimmy alan and the man all friends from the bullpen bar and grill where they are regulars the bed of the utility cart is piled high with cold beers and comfy camp chairs he decides to offer to walk seeing that there are too many people and not enough seats claudia also offers to walk as she needs to feed the horses on the way the rest pile into the four-seater machine with alan behind the wheel man walks ahead of the cart Sally and Claudia close behind him and opens the gate into the pasture where the street dead ends. He unlatches and swings the gate wide open allowing the cart and passenger as well as Claudia and Sally to go through He then closes the gate and latches it just as he had found it having learned the unwritten law of the American West that says leave gates as you find them. Claudia says thanks for that as they walk across the pasture, stepping around huge, large piles of horse shit, four beautiful brown horses, thoroughbreds, are grazing grass and swatting at flies with their tails. Claudia asks the man, You want to help me feed him? We can catch up to the party after. I want to hit him with some fly spray as well. I'd love to. He, he had worked on a guest ranch in the summer of his 19, 19th year, a decade or earlier. He had learned about horses and had loved them. Each of these horses has a German name, which the man can't pronounce. Claudia pours one large scoop of feed into each of the four plastic buckets and hands two of them to the man. Just take those over to the two on the right. The biggest one is the bottom of the totem pole. So make sure to give a bucket to the, to the little guy first or he'll steal it from the big guy immediately copy that the man approaches the little horse first who stops grazing at at their approach seeing the colorful plastic buckets knowing he's about to get the good stuff all of the horses begin lazily walking towards the two meeting them at the center of the pasture the littlest of the four breaks into a momentary trot excited by the food and wanting to get there first The man slips one arm through the wire handle of one bucket and presents the other to the smaller horse who immediately slips his big nose and mouth in it, moving his horse lips around, chewing up the feed. The man slowly lowers the bucket to the ground and strokes the horse's neck, making a few tick, tick, tick noises, taking to the, or talking to the animal. Once the small horse seems engrossed in its snack, he moves to the bigger horse, Who appears a bit aloof not completely sure if he wants to eat the man holds the bucket up to the horse's nose who flips his head back with a snort the man makes some reassuring clicks with his tongue trying to get the horse to eat he sets the bucket down and steps away not wanting to intimidate or upset the 2,000 pound animal who doesn't know him from Adam the horse sniffs the bucket and bef- but before he can begin eating, the smaller horse comes over and chomps the edge, stealing it away from the bigger, less confident beast, spilling it as he pulls it away from his pasture mate, who doesn't appear to care one way or the other. The man tries telling Claudia what had happened, to which she says, whatever, he gets what he deserves, the big dummy, in her half-German, half-American accent. The two humans pick up the empty buckets, deposit them back by the stable, and walk towards the back gate of the pasture, towards the tunnel of trees heading into a surprisingly dense patch of woods. How big is this place? The man asks. Fifteen acres total. We've got about half in pasture now, and the rest is wooded. Alan's been here forever. I just moved in three years ago. Amazing, and so close to downtown. You would never think property like this still exists in Marion County. The man marvels. He feels as though he has stepped back in time. The horses, the stable, the towering grain elevator, visible above the tree line, just outside of the property line. All the smells and the noticeable lack of traffic noise compared to most places in the city. They go through the back gate, closing it tight behind them and walking down the tunnel of green honeysuckle bushes, gnarled and arched overhead, a common opportunistic invader in the city of Indianapolis. Allen had cleared this path during the lockdowns a couple years prior, needing something productive to do. Many of the same folk passed this time or passed the time here at Allentown during the government mandated worldwide halt of nonessential work. An idea that never sat well with the man nor any of the other folks at this party. All work was essential in their estimation. How else could they pay their bar tabs? They would before they would before the man knew them, drink and hang out at Allentown during the months when the bar was closed. They hear voices coming from down the trail, and after walking another hundred yards, the tunnel opens up into a cathedral of tall trees. The cart is pulled to one side with a large fire pit, and a large fire pit stands at the center of the party area, unlit for now. While Allentown generally refers to the entire property, this fire pit next to the creek served as the prime location for most Allentown-related festivities. A tributary of the White River, sometimes called Bean Creek, trickles through the lowland, just beyond the fire ring, flowing into an ancient-looking, at least by Indiana standards, concrete bridge that holds up a set of railroad tracks. The bridge has the year 1948 stamped into the concrete and seems to be holding up fine nearly 75 years later. If the man was still a boy, he would have spent all day playing in this creek under that bridge, inventing worlds of fantasy in this little oasis of nature surrounded on all sides by a sea of concrete, steel, asphalt, brick, and glass. It feels like Sherwood Forest, and he would have been Robin Hood or Little John. It made no difference to him. He thinks of the Roger Miller song from the old Disney movie, Robin Hood and Little John are walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other has to say. Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time. Oodle ollie, golly, what a day. Never ever thinking there was danger in the water. They're just drinking, they're just guzzling it down. Never ever thinking that the sheriff and his posse was a-watching and a-gathering around. Robin Hood and Little John are running through the forest, jumping fences, dodging trees, and trying to get away. Contemplating nothing but escape and finally making it. Oodle alley, oodle golly, what a day. Golly, what a day indeed, he thinks as they approach the group. He sees more folks he knows from the bar Big Kevin, Lindsey, George, and a few folks he doesn't know. Everybody is sweating. This is now officially looking like a party, he thinks. A mishmash of old chairs, tables, a grill, and some oil lamps hang from the trees. Little Kevin is getting the grill going, pouring lighter fluid on the coals and tossing in a match with a big whoosh as the flame flares up and settles back down. A smorgasbord of hot dogs, hamburgers, potato salad, watermelon salad, chips, guac, salsa, and various sweets populate. plastic fold-out table near the grill. Coolers full of drinks and ice are dabbled about. The man pulls his chair, box of beer, and boombox from the back of Alan's golf cart and chooses a spot to set up the music and his chair. He then looks into the biggest cooler and sees ample room for his beers in the melting ice, which are nearly warm after the 30 minutes of travel outside of refrigeration. He stuffs them down into the ice, grabbing a chilled bush light provided by someone else, not knowing who, assuming correctly that nobody gives a shit. He cracks the beer and drinks it deeply, sweating profusely now after the minimal activity of walking. The humidity and heat are oppressive enough to cause anyone to sweat standing still, but the beer is cold, thank God. It is the hottest day of the summer thus far. Fuck, it's fucking hot yells out big kev unabashedly saying what everyone else is thinking as usual effectively kicking off the festive festivities with his statement of the obvious how hot is it kev asks little kevin egging him on well kev i'd say it's hotter than two squirrels fucking in a wool sock oh yeah and how hot is that little kev asks again nearly as hot as two foxes fucking next to a forest fire but not quite This gets quite a few laughs, the imagery being what it is. These two, Big Kev and Little Kev as they are known, are a force multiplier when together. They don't just like to party, they are the party. This is the first time in six months since the man has seen Big Kev, since he had gotten barred from the bar, supposedly for life, for getting into one too many fights the last of which was the final straw to break the bar owner's back in regards to one of his most regular patrons, a formerly reliable pillar at the corner of the bar most evenings and weekends. It had been a particularly nasty fight that got him barred as blood was spilt on the sidewalk, and it wasn't Kevin's. Big Kev is a genuine sweetheart until he isn't. He is hard on the outside and soft on the inside which makes him prone towards protecting the people and places he loves, perhaps to a fault. He would act as the self-declared unpaid bouncer at the bullpen, physically removing people from the bar if he felt they deserved it, and would give them a royal ass kicking in the alley out back if he felt it necessary, though it wasn't always. This man is, as described, quite big, around 6'5", 290", He is very red-headed, matching his ignitable personality with thick, curly, red chest hairs. He is as barrel-chested as one can be and equally boisterous, with a quick wit and a short fuse. He would have you laughing harder than you knew possible with one or two words at the perfect moment about the perfect subject matter, and occasionally would go on monologues of country speak, which took some time knowing him to begin understanding, especially for Claudia. For her, some of these men almost seemed to speak a foreign language in this medium-sized city. While some Hoosiers were northern with non-regional dialect, others seemed exceedingly southern and spoke in a more relaxed tongue. Half the time, Claudia, having learned proper English, could barely understand Alan, her own lover, landlord, and best friend. She would often ask him to repeat himself <clears throat> whenever she couldn't make sense of his words or anyone else's draws, despite having been in Indiana for many years. Little Kev is, in fact, not so little at all compared to the average, only in comparison to his partner in crime, Big Kev. Little Kev is all about fun. While Big Kev was quicker to anger and and action little Kev is also short fused but preferred to fight with clever and cutting sarcastic remarks and insults as opposed to throwing blows he like his bigger friend would not tolerate disrespect or bullshit for long LK's sharp tongue cut like a sword through any unsuspecting assholes emboldened by a well curated group of loyal friends at his back he feels comfortable saying things that most people would not He wasn't afraid to start some shit, figuring BK had his back. But now that BK was barred from everyone's favorite bar, things were all of a sudden a little quieter, calmer, and LK tended to hold his tongue a bit more than before. Seeing the two of them together again warms the man's heart, like seeing twins separated at birth finally reunited, the resonance between them being quite apparent. Both are funny by themselves, but together they verge on the edge of comedic genius. Hot, 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 says Big Kev. Hotter than a 19th century whorehouse in Houston. You said it, big boy. You could wring out my shirt and get a whole shot glass of sweat, I bet. Bet you wouldn't drink it if I did. Bet? Bet I would. Fuck you. If you can fill a shot glass from that shirt, I'll shoot it. Little Kev doesn't hesitate and pulls off his sweat soaked cotton t-shirt who's got a shot glass nobody does alan we need a shot glass no alan shoots back that is the nastiest motherfucking thing i've ever heard in my entire motherfucking life and i won't have no part in it you dirty motherfuckers you'll make me throw up and i ain't even drunk yet the man was starting to think motherfucker must be alan's favorite word while his woman claudia rarely ever curses, and is funny and a little a little sheepish about it whenever she does. Well, fuck you too, Alan, says BK, as he pulls off his own sweat-soaked shirt. It's so fucking hot. Someone grab me a fucking beer. I'm sweating this shirt out quicker than I can drink it. Or sweating this shit out quicker than I can drink it. Fuck it. Let's take a pull. Now both Kevins are half-naked, showing off bodies that would never grace the pages of Calvin Klein or Sports Illustrated, both being built more like John Daly than Tiger Woods, but are powerful versions of the male form nonetheless. They each tape a, take a deep swig off a half-gallon bottle of Evan Williams before passing it around. Come on, you pansy-ass motherfuckers! Shirts off, boys! Jimmy, with his well-cur- well-curled... Power Mullet does not hesitate, pulling off his Jeff Gordon, a local hero, T shirt. If Alan takes off his, I'll take off mine, says the man, the youngest and fittest of the bunch. Alan, taking a pull from the bottle, feeling well lubricated on whiskey by now, smiles at the challenge, stands up and pulls off his shirt with a think I won't, motherfucker? He flexes his sixty plus year old body showing a surprisingly tan torso and toned muscles that then completely disappear behind his beer gut when he stops flexing the man follows suit as promised removing his button-down polyester fly fishing shirt which clings to the sweat of his back exposing his slender frame strong arms and back but lacking his formerly shredded six pack abs becoming a bit more round in the belly after drinking an excess of beers in the last few years many of which he drank with these fine folks He throws the shirt towards his boombox, trying to keep his belongings in one place as the sun gets low and is grateful to be rid of it without being weird or weirder than the rest, hating the feeling of the wet shirt on his skin. It makes almost no difference in regards to the feel of the heat. The dense, humid air keeps the whole region insulated and hot, even without direct sun, with no breeze to speak of. BK yells to George, who is sitting with his back to them near the fire pit apparently ignoring their shenanigans your turn george without turning around he says no thanks i'll keep mine on you fucking weirdos well don't make it gay now george are you trying to make the rest of us uncomfortable or something says the man no such thing as a gay person says little kiv just people who do gay stuff don't judge us I didn't know this was going to be a monkeypox party with all this exposed skin. Anybody have any open sores, says BK? Only a couple, but they aren't seeping too bad, says little Kevin. Don't you think it's awful limiting to call yourself gay? (laughs) LK continues. You're a damn person. You might be a mechanic, an artist, a doctor, a bartender, but you decided to just stop at gay. Don't you think that lacks a bit of creativity? You're a complex creature, and of all the words you choose, "gay." Come on, there's more to life than shoving stuff up your butt. Very little of what these men could say, or <laughs> very little of what these men say, could or should be taken seriously. A while later, he is sitting with George and Alan discussing the current world as the sun go- gets low. I still can't hardly believe they got away with it shutting the whole goddamn world down for months and months for nothing, says the man, and nobody's going to jail for it and never will. I believe it. I saw it happen. You saw it happen. We all lived it. You remember when the bar was closed? asked George. No, actually, I was living down in Bloomington when it when it started, moved up to the city in the middle of all the nonsense. I was on my own for most of the lockdowns. When the bar opened back up, was when I started coming in, and I haven't stopped since. I felt like It felt like the closest thing to a community I'd seen in a long time. I figure if they ever try that bullshit again, they'll be met with a lot more resistance than last time, says the man. Amen, says Alan under his breath. It's just like with Porky. Mind your own business or suffer the consequences. Stay strapped or get clapped, says the man. Mm-hmm. Reply Alan and George in unison. The three men are all armed, as always. The man with a revolver, the other two with automatics. Others in the group are more than likely armed as well, but these three for certain. Everybody knows it, and nobody cares. When a helicopter flies overhead once, and then again a few minutes later, they joke about the possibility of being watched, targeted, surveilled. Only half a joke. Hey, who wants to get some mushroom-laced chocolate squares? Asks Little Kev to the whole group, feeling generous and wanting to to kick the party up a notch. Both George and the man stand up without hesitation and walk over to him. George takes two squares of the psilocybin candy. The man and Little Kev each take three, excitingly. Ain't a party in the woods without some shrooms, says Little Kev. I completely agree, says the man. The party is shaping up with plenty of all of the necessary ingredients. Beer, whiskey, grub, weed, mushrooms, cigarettes, cigars, and the motley crew of misfit toys on their island of nature in the little city of Indy, the motorsports capital of the world. Someone lit the fire halfway and it smokes profusely, expelling toxic fumes as bits of the particle board from, a, from some long ago destroyed piece of cheap furniture tries to burn luckily billowing away from the party in an unfelt air current did anyone bring water one of the unknowns asks who the fuck brings water shouts big kev feigning insult but in reality just taking a swing at the obvious joke hitting it out of the park everyone laughs except a few who don't know he's kidding i did for the dogs says claudia not understanding the joke Fuck the dogs, B.K. howls, like the big red dog he is. A definite alpha, like all of the men here. They can drink from the crick. I suppose they can, but they may not want to. Bean Creek isn't known for its water quality, she retorts, still not recognizing the intentionally absurd joke. With her German sensibilities, she had some difficulty recognizing American sarcasm and absurd, irreverent humor. For a while, the party turns into a shouting match of jokes, stories, and general nonsense. The tenor is very high. The mushrooms are kicking in, and it is becoming difficult to decide who to listen to, with multiple exchanges happening all at once. The man begins to see the auras around people, as they radiate their vibrational energy with visible obviousness. Some are smooth and clean-looking, others fuzzy, as if surrounded by some waveform representation of their mood surrounding their silhouettes claudia constantly anxious that someone might leave one of the gates open releases her uh, releasing her four massive animals into the neighborhood and the wilds of the urban landscape beyond appears noticeably fuzzy to him you nervous claudia he asks her almost whispering underneath the loud voices of the others He could see her aura growing even fuzzier, nervous energy escaping through her skin. Yes, all of these golf cart trips back and forth. I sure hope everyone is closing the gates behind them. Did you tell those guys before they left, Alan? She asks impatiently. Yes, Claudia. I gave them full and complete instructions. He says, not with sarcasm, but with a tone that says, chill, woman. I want to go check, she says. I think I hear the cart a-comin' now, says Allen, in his Kentucky way, not being a native Hoosier. He still owns his family plot in Kentucky, a property the man hopes to see sometime. Little Kev is driving Allen's cart, feeling the mushrooms now, and is weaving it down the hill through the narrow tunnel of honeysuckle towards the creek, not altogether slowly or cautiously, barely dodging limbs and stumps before parking it in its proper place. Alan doesn't seem at all concerned about his machine. Mel, Jimmy, and little Kev offload, presenting freshly rolled joints. Mel had forgotten her weed in the car. The golf cart was a welcome convenience, even though the distance was only about a quarter mile from the street parking to the creek. One could walk it nearly as quickly as you had to get out of the cart twice at each gate, once to open, once to close, both directions. But riding is the nearest thing to AC that they have, so it beats walking back and forth by a long shot. Are the gates closed? Claudia asks Little Kev impatiently. Yes, Claudia, says Little Kev. Or Little Kev snarks back teasingly. Now the energy was getting about right. Shirts off, beers open, psychedelics in the blood, large joints being passed around with no discernible rotation and not a lie in anyone's mouth. The man takes a long pull when the weed reaches him holding it in, warming him from the inside out, feeling good and relaxed now after a bit of tension in the organized chaos. His head goes a little swimmy as he exhales. He enters the Goldilocks zone of intoxication, feeling a solid buzz, but not too much. The conversation goes political, which is frankly unavoidable in the current climate and given the nature of this group, most of whom are frustrated with the way things are. There's too much going on in politics to ignore, even if one might prefer to. Most of this crowd leans conservative with a couple liberals and only one full-blown anarchist, though a couple others are close to converting. <clears throat> the man sits with Claudia and Big Kev for a while as they recant to him the day the two of them met. It was three years prior during the final presidential debate for which Allen was hosting a viewing party. They told him of arguing tooth and claw for the entirety of the debate and hating each other in that moment, while clearly being close friends now. Claudia, being from Europe, could not understand why Americans would have chosen a man like Donald Trump, a valid question for anyone still gaining an understanding of American politics and social dynamics. She had rented one of Allen's three houses on the block and was merely a tenant at that time, not Allen's lover yet though they still live in separate houses, her not being one for cohabitation, as she says it, and him being glad he doesn't have to share a bathroom, having seen the state of filth she keep, or she kept hers in. Brilliant people, <clears throat> male or female, are often slobbish, and he loves her for her brilliance, beauty, and kindness, not her cleanliness or politics. Big Kevin, on the other hand, is a dyed-in-the-wool trumper to the core mostly due to his position as a small business owner. He vehemently, but respectfully, which is as—which is a surprise given his propensity for lewd humor and quickness to anger, explains why the Liberal Party was the biggest threat to him as an entrepreneur. The man, on the other hand, attempts to point out the problem is not one party or the other, but the institution of voting as a whole. The giving away of one's power to a politician who, in all reality, has no intention of serving their constituents, but rather to serve their own, their donors and their cronies' interests. This point is heard by Claudia, but not so much by Kevin, who is feeling quite drunk by this point and was distracted. The discussion ends without any bloodshed as everyone in this moment and space is quite comfortable with a touch of disagreement. It starts getting late, dark. A couple of tiki torches and lamps are lit. The growing darkness adds to the intensity of the mushroom trip. But with the torches lit, it is easier for the man to see, making things less bizarre and creating less possibility of stumbling on a cooler or stepping on a sleeping dog's tail, of which there were ten scattered about under their owner's chairs and elsewhere. The dogs had spent the first couple hours chasing each other and playing in the creek, but they were now tired from the heat and activity and are dead by all appearances. The fire is a sad looking affair with lots of smoke and very little flame. The chemical burn of the particle board is painfully slow with the high humidity and lack of dry wood adding to the problem. Big Kevin stands up and walks quietly to the cooler, perhaps being too quiet, scheming. He grabs a beer and an old wooden chair, before nonchalantly walking directly towards the fire pit, placing the chair right into it, legs down. Not saying a word, but drinking his beer straight-faced. To this act, there is an eruption of laughter, and a new line of ever-increasingly funny jokes. Ah, man, begins Alan, in a deadpan style. What'd you do that for? That was my favorite chair. In his slow southern drawl, now fully toasted on whiskey, weed, and cigars, but not one to partake in the mushrooms. My grandfather whittled that chair down from a solid piece of 200-year-old oak. Everyone laughs their asses off at this image, knowing it's bullshit, except for Claudia, who is thinking Alan might actually be upset. Man, fuck your grandma. We need fire, erupts BK. Man, but it it was part of a matching set. Alan says with false despondency while making no attempt to recover his beloved chair from the underwhelming flames. Everyone laughs again and Claudia cracks a smile, catching on. He looks over his shoulder to see that this is in fact true. There is a second identical chair sitting unoccupied behind the ring of rascals. Alan was honest about that at least. The chairs had obviously been sitting down by the creek for many years and had not seen and had seen much better days, stained green with mold and moss. Nobody is using them for a reason. It is starting to char on the bottom, but does not want to catch fire. Sitting comfortably in his better chair, Alan says, Man, you better get that thing out of there before it's ruined. Laughter. I could probably rebuild it. Everyone laughs harder at Alan's dry delivery. My granddaddy is rolling over in his grave right now. That was a goddamn motherfucking family heirloom. Roaring laughter. Where's the lighter fluid, Little Kev? Asks Big Kev. Right here, you fucking pyro, Little K says, thinking better of tossing it towards his friend, still standing near the pathetic but still hot flame. He walks the bottle over to his drunk, stoned giant of a friend. Big Kevin opens the bottle and squirts a generous and continuous stream of lighter fluid all over the chair, causing the flames to flare up and engulf it temporarily. Aw, man, what'd you do that for? I could have fixed it. Fuck that chair, Alan. Burn, motherfucker! The flames die down and the chair still appears relatively salvageable. Why won't you die, screams Big Kevin, dousing it again. People double over, unable to stop laughing hysterically. Hey, man, Alan says with an almost convincing seriousness. Quit using up all the lighter fluid, man. While actually enjoying the show thoroughly, smiling as he continues his banter. The chair was worth twice its weight in laughter at this point. Alan concludes by saying, Man, that was a teakwood chair carved by, carved by my granddaddy, hand spun on a lathe, acting dismayed. The whole scheme is so damn funny that the man's sides and face hurt from laughing and smiling, a common symptom of mushroom consumption. The chair is finally fully ablaze. About 30 minutes later, during a period of relative quiet and calm, when the chair, <laughs> with the chair half gone, but a decent fire in its place, Alan says with expert timing during a lull in conversation. Y'all still think I could fix granddaddy's chair? Laughter erupts once more. The death of the not-so-priceless artifact spawns a new series of more serious conversations. In a rare moment where everybody is paying attention to the same thing, the conversation turns towards Larry, a former regular at the bar, now passed away, and everyone becomes attentive. Larry was beloved by all, but the man had never actually met him personally, being a latecomer to the group. Larry had served in both the Army and the Air Force, and had been all over the world. He was a black man with mostly white friends, not that it mattered much to anyone. He had passed shortly after the bar reopened, having gotten sick, very sick. After a two-week battle with COVID pneumonia, indistinguishable from other pneumonia by all accounts for a man of Larry's age, weight, and health, but Larry appeared to have recovered, and he was discharged from the hospital, only to die a few hours after getting home. Big Kevin, getting emotional now, with everyone listening intently, retells the story of Larry's final days. Kevin talks about when he went to visit Larry at the hospital, being told to take that shit off your face the moment he walked into Larry's hospital room. How Larry told him, I already have the fucking disease. What the fuck is that shit going to do at this point? Referring to the surgical mask and face shield that in hindsight appear to have done absolutely nothing to prevent the spread of possibly of the possibly engineered airborne virus. The common argument would be that they were to protect Kevin from the disease, which Larry possessed, but Kevin was much younger, fitter and not a bit concerned for himself only for Larry. Kevin works in, a risk-filled field inspecting fire suppression systems for all kinds of industrial and commercial buildings, sometimes working in steel mills, factories or and factories where a momentary lapse of judgment could spell disaster. He wasn't afraid of a little risk or a germ for that matter. He wanted to have a face to face with his dear friend, not knowing if he would live or die. So he removed the mask and shield from his face, honoring Larry's wishes. It turned out to be the last time the two friends ever spoke or saw each other smile. Kevin then recants the story, recants a story from before the pandemic, when he had been drinking from sunup to sundown one night. He says, I walked into the bullpen at 10 a.m. this one Sunday morning, before opening time, having not slept a wink. Larry was the only one sitting at the bar already, enjoying his Irish coffee. God bless the Irish with their car bombs, whiskey, and Republican Army, kindred spirits to the American rebel patriot. Kevin continues, Larry and I did a couple shots of Jameson, and eventually I pass out, leaning on Larry's shoulder. He wakes me back up with an elbow to the ribs and says, You want to drink again tonight, Kevin? I said, Yes. And he says, Well, then you'd best get your ass home and catch some Z's. Come back when you're sobered up and slept a little. (sniffs) Kevin trails off for a moment thinking. Everyone waits, listens, knowing there's more. So I say, yes sir, corporal. And Kevin begins choking up, then outwardly crying, overwhelmed for a moment by the memory. So I did as he told me. I went home and I slept it off. He trails off again. Not sure what else to say. To Larry, says the young man, holding up his beer, relieving Big Kevin despite having never met the man, sensing the story was finished. Fuck yeah, to Larry, says Big Kevin, knocking cans, wiping the tears from his eyes, and swallowing a lump in his throat. The man pours a little beer on the ground out of respect for the unknown man, but feeling connected to him in this moment with these people sharing in this intense group love after a few separate conversations after a few separate conversations begin spontaneously. The man ends up sitting with Claudia who is always willing to speak more intellectually and is highly educated. She teaches English and German literature at a nearby university but had written her master's thesis on various theories and literary lore regarding the origins of life, from the religious to the scientific, searching for a god that she doesn't believe in, as she says. Describes herself herself as a staunch atheist. This statement piqued his interest. So how do you think it all started, he asks. Life, she responds. Yeah, life. Well, I I suppose the warm pond theory, if I had to choose. A nutrient-rich solution in which the first amino acids formed, perhaps after being influenced by an electrical current from a nearby lightning strike, or something. They began assembling and creating the first single-cell organisms, which eventually led to more complex life. That or something like it. And what do you think the statistical probability is of that? Hmm, pretty slim, I guess. Might you say miraculously slim? Well, I suppose you could say that. It is the greatest mystery in science. Abiogenesis, they call it, the mystery of non living matter becoming living bodies. Some suggest matter is inherently self organizing, leading to increasingly complex or increasing complexity any time the conditions are right. Elements lead to molecules, lead to compa- compounds. Mixed in the proper proportions, these base parts lead to more and more complex structures that eventually grow and self-replicate. I think I prescribed to the seed meteor theory, he says. Did you know that mushroom spores are unharmed by being in the vacuum of space and that there are small multi-celled organisms called tardigrades or water bears, which are also shown to survive in the vacuum, I believe it is much more po- probable that something landed here as a seed of life, so to speak, carrying a few spores or microbes or strands of RNA, if not some hardier form of multi-celled organism, which could make the trip. Which begs the question that, if it is the case, where did it come from? The man inquires, somewhat somewhat hypothetically. Well, that is an interesting question. It would mean that that somewhere else in the solar system or galaxy, there is or was a place with life, ponders Claudia. Exactly. Perhaps an asteroid carrying small bits of life eventually collided with Earth and planted the seed. Some think it may have come from Mars. Of course, that doesn't answer the original question, Of how life began in the first place, only how it began on Earth. I find that fairly improbable as well. Agreed, which is why my theory is that it was not a random meteor, but a missile of sorts, sent with a purpose, from someone, somewhere. By who? God, aliens, chance. I'm not even sure if there's a difference, or if it even matters. My bet, believe it or not, is God, but not the whole book of Genesis, Adam and Eve thing, though I kind of like the poetry of it. I just don't like the word God, Claudia says. It's the best word I can come up with. Hmm. Hmm is right. After this discussion on the origin of life, by some natural progression, the semi-private chat turns back to the topic of death. Claudia discusses watching her father die of melanoma skin cancer, an excruciating ordeal. She mentions how one day, close to the end, her father said something to the effect of, if I was a cow or a dog or a pig, I would have been put down by now. But instead, we choose life at any cost, even extreme suffering. She then talks about a dog she had that had gotten very sick. It wasn't possible to diagnose the problem, but it was an old dog and was beginning to have seizures going downhill quickly. Claudia reasons it might have been a brain tumor. She describes watching the dog suffer on the way to the vet, contorted and wriggling with blood coming from its ears and mouth. I hate to say it, the right thing would have been a bullet. I know, but I didn't own a gun back then. It was before I ever met Alan. The vet put her down immediately, a minute after we got there. That's because the vet knew the right thing to do was to get it done as quickly as possible. I've had to dispatch three animals myself out of mercy. More than that, if we're counting things I was going to eat. But the mercy kills are harder for me because you don't have the benefit of preparing for it mentally. I've butchered chickens, hunted, fished, but that feels very different. All three were wild animals, not my own dog. In the old days, people would make pacts with each other, that if one of their dogs got sick, the other person would take care of it for them so they wouldn't have to euthanize their own. It is one of the most unpleasant things one can do, but it must be done. I am glad that, so far, I have had the Constitution to do it when necessary. Did you shoot them? asks Claudia. No, actually, didn't have a gun the first two times didn't want to let off a shot in the city the third time. I didn't want to have to explain myself to law enforcement. The fuckers would probably charge me with something if they could catch me. So, she hesitates to ask, "How'd you do it?" Different ways. I used what I had. You know, one time I saw a squirrel which looked at the looked as though it had been badly gored probably by some bird of prey's talons. There was blood it was bloody, sliced open to where I could see its insides, but it was still breathing, barely, not moving or attempting to, even at my approach. I was walking to class when I saw it. I got about ten steps past it before realizing if I didn't do something, I would feel guilt all day, knowing it might still be lying there, helpless and in pain. So I grabbed a big stick, laid it across the squirrel's neck, and stopped on, stomped on the stick as hard as possible cervical dislocation being the goal a broken neck i stomped it twice just to be certain and it stopped breathing another time i was driving my truck and trailer to buy a load of gravel from the yard saw a gopher on the side of the road that had been hit but looked like it was still breathing i should have stopped right then and dealt with it but instead i went to i went and got the load of gravel feeling guilty for driving past without stopping When I left the yard, the poor thing was still lying there, alive, as I had thought, 10 or 15 minutes longer than it should have. It hadn't moved in that time, in the time I was gone. It just laid in the hot sun, hurting, and it hurt me to see it. I pulled over, grabbed my shovel out of the back of the truck, and bashed it hard on the head. Again, a couple times, as hard as I could. Almost broke the damn shovel. Gophers are tough-bodied animals, but the blunt force trauma ended it quickly enough. Sometimes I wonder if it's playing God to do that kind of thing, but I'm too empathetic to watch something suffer in that way with no hope of recovery. I think it's best to end it quickly. I can't disagree, says Claudia. It was terrible. Both my dad and my dog. I can't even imagine. I'm so very sorry. Death sucks. Just makes you wish pain didn't exist. She says, I actually disagree. It must exist. It tells, or it's what tells you to stop doing whatever it is that's causing the pain. It keeps you alive. It tells you to stop using the injured part of the body to let it rest and recover. Pain suppression is one of the greatest failings of our modern medical industry. The attempt to remove pain from the equation has directly caused the very real opioid epidemic that we're now in. You can't get rid of the pain, you can only delay it or change its form. Pain isn't pleasant, and that's the whole goddamn point. Trying to cover it up just defers it, makes it worse in the long run. So what would you do if it was you, dying painfully? I suppose that'd be for me to decide, if or when the time comes. I wouldn't expect anyone else to put me down. I would do it myself if I was terminally ill or what have you. But then again, it could be a mortal sin to kill yourself, no matter what. I might just choose to suffer till the end, however it comes. My hope is to to die quietly in my sleep at the ripe age of 95, but I sorta doubt that. How come? I can't say why exactly, I just always had a feeling I might not live to be an old man. I'm not terribly afraid to die or anything like that, I don't think about it much. I just think it's best to live well for the time we have. Death comes for everybody eventually, some sooner than others. Have I told you about my other German friend? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. He was from Sulzbach. I hope I'm saying that right. Sulzbach, she pronounced it as it was meant to be. Really? That's in Saarland. I've never been, but I know it's beautiful. Where is he now? dead he says matter-of-factly oh my god what happened asks Claudia an avalanche a very German way to die I think skiing are you serious she gasps as a damned heart attack 23 years old he was almost a doctor wow that's terrible I'm sorry me too he was one of the best people I ever knew what was his name? Sven. Of course it was. Well, she holds up her can of beer. To Sven. They touch cans quietly, the man now thinking of a memory. He used to get choked up when he talked about Sven, like Kevin did about Larry, but now he spoke of him stoically, proud to have known him at all, knowing that he had lived well and died well, quickly and somewhat painlessly, even if too soon. The man figures that is all relative and not necessarily for him to judge. Though he will always be sad his friend is gone forever, he no longer carries the weight of it as he had for some years. You know, it's funny. We were just high school boys when he came over as a foreign exchange student. We got very close very quickly. He chose me as his best American friend, as he would say it. He was the kind of guy who was funny without meaning to be. One time, we were poking fun at him for being uncircumcised since the rest of us middle-class Anglo-Christian white boys were snipped after birth. I remember him saying, Fuck you, man. I am not the weird one. You are the weird ones. In his funny German accent. He said, In most of the world, almost no one is circumcised. It's crazy here, man. You guys don't even know. He was right, of course. It is crazy here and I'm now staunchly anti-circumcision. Man, we're really covering the gamut here. Ha, says Claudia. No kidding. It's funny that nobody in this country wants to talk about circumcision. Doctors regularly talk skeptical parents into it by saying it's healthier and more hygienic. Funny how it's called genital mutilation if it's done to a girl, but not to a boy. Actually, it's not funny at all. I think the medical schools brainwash American doctors into thinking it's the right thing, but it's some fucked up shit, in my opinion. What in the royal fuck are you two talking about over there? Alan asks, slurring a bit. Everything and anything, brother, says the man. Well, give it a rest. I'm hearing some weird shit. We'll talk about anything we like, Alan. Until Claudia's done, neither am I, he says, but that was more or less the end of the day train of thought anyways so the two campfire philosophers rejoin the larger group's conversation it is now getting quite late things are seemingly winding down the mushrooms are wearing off the man feels surprisingly sober after all the drinks smoke and mushroom chocolates he is still wide awake at 1 30 a.m and he hopes the party won't end for a while yet for some time the man speaks to scotty a new friend just met this evening You know I'm a three-time convicted felon, Scotty asks, cutting right to the chase. I did not know that. What'd you do? Assuming if he was out now, it couldn't have been that terrible. Possession and distribution of narcotics. I'm a hustler, man. I can see that. Scotty was dressed in all pink. Pink shirt, pink sunglasses on his forehead, and the cherry at the bottom of the milkshake, pink Crocs on his feet the foam rubber shoe that never looked good on anyone until him. You're not a fairy, are you? Nope, I just love the color pink. Always have. I'm pimping in pink, my man. Can't disagree with you there. It actually works for you. Two weeks ago, I had a 15-inch tall pink mohawk. Why'd you shave it? This fucking heat, man. I ain't a skinhead or nothing. Well, shit, maybe I am, I guess. Skinheads are actually misunderstood, like a lot of folks. Most of them ain't racist at all. They're just punks. I've met a few black skinheads. They ain't no neo-Nazis everyone thinks they are. In fact, they kick some serious Nazi ass sometimes. If they find out someone's like that, <clears throat> I come from the punk scene and, I, and lots of folks don't understand it at all. Isn't that kind of the point? I think I might get it more than most. I've met all kinds of people, and I've learned you can't judge a book by its cover. Unless maybe there's swastikas on the cover somewhere. That's a dead giveaway. Ha! Heard. So what do you do for money, the man asks. I sell sex toys, Scotty says. Well, that kind of figures, actually. (laughs) It suits you. They laugh. Finally, around 2 a.m., people begin moving... Are making moves to leave, collecting their valuables, leaving the trash for tomorrow. For such a ruckus, the mess isn't all that terrible. The man had seen much worse after parties such as this. There is clearly a lot of respect in this group, for Alan in particular, their host. People throughout the night tended to use the garbage bag instead of the ground, fully thankful to be at a party with very few rules and absolutely no rulers. They load the golf cart, and once again, the man offers to walk, as they are still short on seats. Ladies can ride, boys can walk, right, Jimmy? Jimmy either doesn't hear or chooses not to, and sways about, unable to walk straight. Claudia offers to walk again as well, giving her and the man a chance to speak some more. Sally follows without being called, ready for home and air conditioning. They make good conversation together whenever they speak, the man and Claudia. Nothing of major significance is discussed on the way out of the woods, mostly talking about this funny group of hooligans, possibly unmatched in the entire city. This is a group of people who have absolutely nothing to prove, completely informal and organic, sharing very little in common aside from mutual respect and a favorite dive bar. They take people as they come, so long as they can take a little shit and give it back. So long as they're fun to be around and so long as they don't make things awkward or unbearable for any reason. With more than 40 years of age span between them, it is a multi-generational, multilingual, multicultural group despite all appearances to the contrary. They share a mutual love of a good time and a certain loyalty to one another. Once you had earned a spot with this group, they would defend you to the death, which the man figured might just end up being the case someday. Towards the end of the walk, Claudia asks, Why don't you have a girlfriend? Taking no offense to the question, he answers quickly. I fell in love once. Hard. Haven't met anybody I liked as much since. Sometimes I think women my age just don't know what to do with a guy like me. I can be a hard man to love. Bullshit. We all love you. Well, gee, thanks, he says, smiling. But that ain't going to get my dick hard. Chapter 8. The Garden He wakes up in the motel room. Dim morning light is trickling in. It's still early. Good, he thinks. He likes waking up early and having the morning to himself. He puts on his trousers and linen shirt from the night before, knowing they're still clean enough. He then puts on his belt and slips on his holster and pistol. He scantily takes many steps before securing his weapon in the morning. He opens his duffel and grabs a small stick, whittled down to a blunt point and and frayed at the end. Dogwood from back home, naturally antiseptic. He had packed three dozen of these twigs for his journey, and had only used a dozen so far. He casually scrubs his teeth, getting between them with the frayed wood fibers, scrubbing the scum between the scum which had developed overnight he then grabs his water bottle nearly empty just enough for a mouth a mouthful to rinse gargle and spit he goes to the sink opens the faucet and clean looking water comes out better ask suzanne if it's safe to drink thinking about the water in tory and how sweet and safe it is some folks even call the town of tory sweet water colloquially It is only about 40 miles from Hanksville and perhaps would be their home tonight. He finishes his morning routine with a very small swig from an old bottle of blue mouthwash, somewhat precious and only used on occasion. He makes the most of it, moving it and swishing it around inside his mouth for a couple of minutes, spitting it out long after the burn set into his tongue, gums, and cheeks, making them nearly numb but enjoying the burning sensation. Oral hygiene had gone by the wayside for many folks in the autonomous zones, as most toothpaste is essentially no more. As with soap, these conveniences are more available in the government-controlled zones, but they are all the same generic products. Government-slash-corporate cooperation means that certain products are provided by a sole company, contracted by the government to produce necessary goods, creating government-sanctioned monopolies on many people's essentials. This means that there was only one brand of soap and one brand of toothpaste, neither of which had any frivolous flavors or scents. Competition is discouraged in the government-controlled zones and seen as a path towards inequity. Meanwhile, homemade soap and toothpaste in the autonomous zones are valuable trade products, each of them unique, flavored and scented to suit the taste of their independent producers, who sell them in the spirit of entrepreneurship. Rarer, yes, but much finer than the readily available government-sanctioned products on either coast. He opens the door to greet the day. It is cool this morning, but soon to heat up with direct sunlight. He sees a pile of neatly folded laundry sitting on a rolling handcart, and his empty laundry bag tied to its handle. Suzanne, what a sweetheart, he thinks again, pulling the cart into his room, leaving it for now and locking the door behind him. He decides to enjoy the coolness by taking a walk to and through the garden, as he hadn't had the time to explore it yesterday. He walks barefoot into the patio where the humble party had occurred only some hours before. Sally follows him, sniffing and looking for a suitable place to squat and pee. He had neglected to collect his and Hayduke's beer cans from the night before, which were still sitting on the picnic table undisturbed. They numbered 10. Not too bad. Still a couple left he thinks. He decides he will collect them now before Suzanne sees. Beer cans are actually quite useful. Among other creative uses, they can easily be made into alcohol-fuel stoves for backcountry cooking. Liquid propane, being what it is, is nearly unaffordable except to buy in bulk. The days of the little green one-pound propane tanks are over, unless one has the means to refill old ones. Coleman camp stoves, which were previously a camper's best friend, are therefore no longer practical. People now use high-proof moonshine liquor to fill alcohol stoves for simple cooking or for a simple cooking option. While you can't regulate the flame the same as or the same way as with propane, it is at least a way to make things hot and will boil water given enough time and protection from the wind. A simple piece of thick metal foil wrapped around the base contains the heat in order to get the most from his precious fuel. The man makes these from beer cans and finds them easy to barter. He picks up the empty cans, carries them to the camper, and unlocks the door, grateful that he had remembered to lock it while drunk the night before. Goes in and deposits them in the small kitchen sink upside down, almost unable to fit them all without crushing a couple. Then he steps back outside and relocks the camper's only door. Sally is peeing near the garden, the direction he wants to go. He walks that way, following the long, thick hedge of ragusa rose and raspberries, a living fence. There are still ripe raspberries to pick, so he grabs a few and eats them, feeling the sour, sweet juices exploding on his tongue. They are delicious, so he keeps picking more as he walks along. Hedge on his right, line of elevated water tanks to his left. He reaches the middle point of the garden, where there is a large gate, and a latticed arch overhead leading into the heart of it. He opens it and goes in, leaving Sally outside to her dismay. Sorry, girl, no dogs allowed in the garden. You know the rules. She watches him through the gate as best as she can, not sure if she's free to roam or not. She sits and stays, simply choosing to wait. He scans the garden from the inside and finds himself even more impressed with it than he had been the day before when looking from a distance. The large central path goes straight ahead from the gate to the big peach tree and bee boxes, which, despite being tempted by the ripe-looking peaches on the tree, give him pause. Even in this cool early morning, the bees were quite active. While he isn't terrified of bees, after getting into a hornet's nest as a young child, he carries a healthy fear for all stinging insects. Despite his appreciation for the bees' good work and mild temperament, just don't piss them off, he thinks. Plus, he... Plus, I tasted those peaches last night in Suzanne's cobbler, and he figures they're probably not as good as the ones in Fruta, so he decides not to bother with them or the bees. He looks to his right and to his left, seeing long rows of crops planted densely and mulched heavily with straw, which grows in abundance in the floodplain along the Fremont River, under the watchful eye of the local hay farmers. The man sees drip irrigation tubing here and there, visible in some places, but generally running underneath the layer of straw. He looks back out the arched gateway to see a thick fireman's hose running from the central water tank in the row of IBC totes, under the living fence and into the garden with a skinnier drip tubes running into each productive row. Each tote is plumbed to the next with a manifold made of three inch PVC pipe glued together with purple cement. At the center tote of the road with the fire hose attached, there is a large red-handled valve to open and close the system. This is known as a gravity-fed drip system, a very simple design with no moving parts except one large valve, which could be left open for an hour or two, allowing gravity and volumetric pressure to disperse the water throughout the network of narrower lines, which are made of a semi-hard plastic and has emitter holes every 16 inches, allowing the water to drip out slowly this creates much less evaporative loss than spray irrigation especially since the drip tubing is underneath the straw mulch layer watering the shaded soil directly and keeping it moist longer than it would otherwise giving the plants time to drink he looks as or it looks as though the totes are about half empty the man counts 40 totes and does a little mental math 40 totes 325 gallons each half full is about 6,500 gallons, 13,000 if full. Not too shabby, but I bet it goes quick out here. He wonders if they bring the water from the river in a truck or through a hose and pump. He sees no water truck nearby, but knows in a small town like this someone is likely to have one. He assumes that is the method, as the Dirty Devil River is nearly a mile away and would require a powerful pump. While the Fremont River is much closer with the Dirty Devil draining into it, it lacks the high silt silt content of the Dirty Devil and hence the benefits of added nutrients and minerals. The man wondered about the drip lines getting clogged with the thick water, whether the bottoms of the tanks got filthy with sunken sediment and how they might have to clean the system out periodically. His curiosity runs a mile a minute. He wanders around the garden's perimeter, inside of the natural fence line, looking at all the varieties of vegetables herbs and flowers occupying the many long rows there appears to be a path <clears throat> excuse me there appear to be about 20 lateral rows divided only in the middle by the main path a sort of roundabout exists around the big peach tree it is very it is a very efficient use of space with the maximum amount of square feet in production and a minimum amount in pathways All of the paths are covered with a thick layer of crushed gravel, making it a very durable and clean surface, not prone to weeds. He sees some rows are nearly harvest or are nearly ready for harvest while others are freshly planted. They are are practicing rotational, high turnover gardening, referred by some practitioners as the spin method, small plot intensive he could see some birds picking at the raspberries and cherry tomatoes, despite multiple scarecrows. Lots of insects are busy, busily buzzing about. Aside from the bees, there are various types of butterflies, wasps, and even some praying mantises. He pulls a little of the straw mulch back at the edge of one of the mounded soil beds and reaches down, picking up a handful of the dark reddish-brown dirt. He spreads the handful out over his palm, looking at it closely To see a few tiny insects moving in the dirt. Nearly microscopic centipedes, pill bugs, and worms. He closes his hand and compacts the soil in his fist. When he releases the pressure, it holds together. He then pokes the dirt clod with his finger and it instantly crumbles exactly as it should. Nice and friable, he thinks. He holds it under his nose and sniffs deeply. Smells almost like good Midwestern soil rich somehow, he thinks, but quite different, redder, more iron, almost carrying the smell of blood. Perhaps it is. Indian legend tells, excuse me, Indian legends tell of the soil being marked red by the blood of their ancestors, and maybe they're correct. He puts the soil back respectfully in its proper place and covers it back up with the straw, careful not to disturb anything too much as he knows disturbance invites weeds. He finishes his lap of the garden, basking in its dense green and myriad of vibrant and colorful flowers, zinnias, marigolds, calendula, cosmo, and sunflowers, as well as purple amaranth and tall stalks of corn, showing the tips of ears of many colors nearly ready for harvest with golden tassels crowning them old Varieties of maize that harken back to when the natives would grow it in this area The whole back row of the garden the south side opposite from the row of water tanks is planted with the corn Now seven feet high and creating a stunning backdrop to the central peach tree from the front gate The corn as well as the tall flowers provide dappled shade to the lettuces growing in the next row Which he is surprised to see doing so well this late in summer these folks know what they're doing, he says out loud to himself. He decides to go back to the gate and sit down on the gravel path, legs crisscrossed, facing the peach. He closes his eyes and listens to the sounds of the insects. There is no wind, so he hears them clearly, doing what they do, jumping from plant to plant, flower to flower, perhaps collecting pollen, perhaps uh, uh, hunting other bugs something that is unknown to or at least unused by the industrial farmers in the occupied zones. The key to pest management is not chemicals, but more insects, at least more varieties of them. By not using insecticides, predatory insects can live, balancing the ecosystem of the garden, not letting any one pest grow too large in number before becoming a meal. Tomato hornworms, for instance serve as the host for a parasitic wasp, which lays its eggs inside the hornworm's body, providing a comfortable space for incubation and a first meal for the baby wasps, ultimately killing the hornworm as it is eaten from the inside, ideally before the worm causes too much damage to the tomato tomato foliage it consumes. Thinking of this, he remembers that night in Allentown, not so many years ago, when Sally was grown but still had puppy energy. He remembers talking to claudia at one point about the three relationships in ecology parasitism predation and mutualism he remembers explaining that permaculture is built on the idea that these are the only three ways organisms can relate to one another and that the ideal perhaps is mutualism while predation and parasitism are unavoidable facts of nature neither good nor bad necessarily mutualism is a is the more common more powerful and more productive mode of interaction though it was not terribly well understood in the early days of biological and scientific inquiry the young discipline of ecology not finding its feet until the 1970s is a more fully integrated science less reductionistic Ecologists are hell bent on understanding the complex natural systems of the earth, not just asking questions like how does photosynthesis work or what family order genus does XYZ species fall into, but questions more like how do trees and fungal networks interact? How do people relate and relate to and impact the ecosystem and what would happen if an ape? apex predator is reintroduced into an area where they were previously wiped out initially many ecologists were climate alarmists swearing we would all be killed by our own folly before the turn of the millennium but that never happened in more recent years people have had other concerns like where is our next meal coming from and please don't kill me and steal my stuff so conversations about climate change had all but ceased The more immediate and practical concerns became the focus. Eventually, the science of ecology led to the borderline religion called deep ecology, which led in turn to the development of the permaculture design method, founded by a wise man named Bill who studied indigenous cultures and their ecosystems all across the globe in an effort to summarize and synthesize their teachings for the modern man. His idea was a big one, creating a permanent culture. By developing 12 catchy and pragmatic principles, including capture and store energy, observe and interact, and return of surplus, to name a few, Mr. Bill Mollison was able to translate the teachings from natives into something digestible and actionable, um, something that might work now for everyone. Mollison was a prime example of someone who learned from nature instead of about nature. He had dropped out of school at the age of 15, not returning to academia for over 20 years and carrying with him experience from the real world and a deep appreciation for and understanding of the planet's natural systems and human cultures. These thoughts roamed around in the man's mind without any specific direction. Eyes closed, he, say, he says a small prayer of thanks to God for allowing him to learn these things before the collapse. The great blackout, making him well-equipped for the task of reconstruction in its wake, as long as he survived and continued. The warm sun shines down on his back from over the roof of the motel, warming him rapidly. He decides to lay down on the gravel, praying, meditating, letting thoughts come and go as they wish, Like a cat in a sunbeam, he slowly drifts into a trance, a deep and total state of calm, totally awake, focusing on nothing in particular, while semi-conscious of everything, everywhere, all at once.